Hello and welcome to the We Are Rail Fans podcast. The series for rail fans by rail fans exploring all areas of the rail hobby from around the world. I'm Sam and last time we were together I asked you for your best railway journeys that you'd been on. Mike from Queensland, Australia has been in touch to say, My favourite ever railway journey was the day my wife and I spent riding steam trains on the Seven Valley Railway, which runs between Kidderminster and Bridge North in England. It really was a dream come true that I will never forget. We rode those beauties until the last service. Thanks, Mike. Great to hear that the Seven Valley Railway is making waves in Oz. If you want to get in touch to share your favourite railway journey, then visit wearerailfans.com or find us on Facebook at We Are Rail Fans. There you'll also find all the latest news, views and interviews from the train world, as well as links to all the previous episodes of this podcast. You're listening to the We Are Rail Fans podcast. And so far on this show, we've focused on drivers of locomotives. But today we want to hear from someone who doesn't drive a train, but is driving a major project on the railway network. Let's bring in John Millwood, who's the Historic Environment Manager for HS2. Part of the project that John's overseeing includes the restoration of one of the world's oldest railway buildings in Curzon Street Station in Birmingham. Hi John, thanks for coming on the show. No, pleasure. Hi there. Before we come on to your role, first of all, HS2, for those who don't know, and uh, and certainly in the UK, I think everybody knows more or less, but, uh, but what is it? Uh, it's a fantastic opportunity for Britain's new low-carbon high-speed railway. Um, so we're, we're actually aiming to build basically a new backbone to our um, high-speed offering. It'll free up you know, loads more capacity for freight and passengers, cut journey times. It's way lower carbon than any of the other options. And when it's completed, we'll actually have 345 miles of brand new high-speed rail. Why is this important? Well, it's going to get people out of cars, off planes, feed the green agenda, but also genuinely we believe it's a great catalyst for growth, uh, not just in London, but also across the region. So it feeds into the government sort of levelling up programme. So where does it run from and to? Okay, well, phase one, which is where I mainly focus my efforts these days, is basically London to the West Midlands. But we've got a spur into Birmingham and then we head up to just outside Lichfield. Then phase 2A is sort of from Staffordshire up to Cheshire. And then phase 2B is obviously the big run up towards Leeds in that way. For anyone who's not in the UK, basically that's London, the capital, which is sort of southeast-ish, heading up into the Midlands, which is a couple of hundred miles north of there. When was the last time we had a, a build project of this kind of scale, John? Do you know? Uh, well, the, funnily enough, the last major railway line out of London heading north was the Grand Central back in 1899. So it's well over 100 years since we've embarked on a rail building project as ambitious. So we're probably a little overdue then. When's this due to be ready? Uh, sort of late, late 2028 through to sort of 2031, depending on which bit you're looking at. And is it coming along in phases or is it all going to just grandly launch in one section? <laughs> Well, I, I think much as that would be splendid, I, I think our plan has always been that we'll, we'll launch it in phases. So phase one and 2A are looking to be um, launched at the same time. So you should, in theory, be able to get from London to Crewe 2028, which will be great. Smashing. So you're the historic environment manager. What does that have to do with something as modern as HS2? <laughs> yeah, it's a question I get asked quite a lot, Sam. Basically, HS2 for... For those who haven't read all of the act that goes with it, um, is committed to investigating the historic environment, amongst other things. 
And we've got it actually written into both the Act and our environmental minimum requirements that HS2 must undertake heritage uh, research before we actually build the railway. So we've actually got tighter planning regulations around heritage and indeed wider environmental issues than normal building projects. So is is this effectively part of law? Do you have to do this or or is this something that the, the project team are doing out of their own uh, public spiritedness? <laughs> no, it, it is the law on this job. But equally, we're, we're hoping that we can drive a new innovation in how archaeology is done in this country. So we're actually looking at research-driven and focused work rather than by rote trenching. So instead of digging a hole somewhere because we happen to be building, we're actually saying, well, what research questions can we ask and what bits of our history can we actually better understand as a result of this work? So it's kind of, you know, it's a two-pronged attack. You know, yes, we have to do it, but we should equally be doing it better rather than just for the sake of it. I'd also love to add that it's actually the largest programme of archaeological works ever undertaken in the UK. We've got in effect, about 10,000 years worth of British history that we've uncovered thus far. Um, and we are using around about 1,000 archaeologists, which for a career which is normally numbered in only the lower thousands, uh, it's, a, it's a huge commitment and a, a boom to our industry. So what's being done with the archaeological work that you discover along the way? Is, is that being then preserved and transported? Would the route that the, the, uh, the, the HS2 is planned to take, would that deviate if it came across something significant? Um, we actually have a duty to um, protect by design where possible, which basically means we, we are aiming wherever we can to actually design works to minimise their impact on the historic environment. So it isn't that we would necessarily deviate the railway, but we'll try and build the railway in such a way that we can preserve any archaeology next to it or underneath it where that's feasible. What's the most interesting thing you found so far then? Well, for me, obviously, I, I cover a piece of phase one amongst the team. Curzon Street Roundhouse has got to be up there. I mean, I think I'm probably duty-bound on this call to say anything rail heritage anyway. Right. Um, but um, equally, we, we do have a really good medieval manor house at Coles Hill in Warwickshire, which is, which is looking really very, very good. So are you, is your interest uh, in the general history of, of what you turn up on the route, are you an archaeologist or are you a project manager who happens to have a flair for history? <laughs> no, I'm very much an archaeologist. I'm, I'm a member of the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists. Project management is kind of an adjunct to my major focus. I like the study of the human past. That's what I've got my degrees in and uh, that's what I've done since I left uni, really. And are you specifically fascinated by railways or is this just a happy coincidence? Well, I mean, I, I think I, I would say I'm a generalist, but I equally grew up near Ironbridge. So the Industrial Revolution has always held that kind of special fascination. And I do remember getting some pretty weird looks as a teenager exploring um, deserted railway sidings and locations of former railways, plateways and that sort of thing. And then the work that we've been doing at Curzon Street has really kind of reinvigorated and rekindled my interest in this sort of thing. So is your fascination then more with the, the infrastructure that railways have taken rather than necessarily the, the great steel beasts that run on top of them? I think probably yes. I think it's that kind of, as an archaeologist, I tend to like to find things that I can put a shovel in the ground and then try and work out what I've got. So inevitably, for me, the, uh, the locomotives, fa fascinating and wonderful though they are, are, are somewhat transient, whereas it's the sort of the permanent scars on the landscape that I'd like to investigate. Fantastic. So Curzon Street Station, you've spoken about it a couple of times already. It's one of the world's oldest railway buildings. Tell us a little bit more about it. Where is it and, and what makes it important? Okay, well, it's in the centre of sunny Birmingham. 
uh, so, you know, heart of the Midlands. And what we refer to as Curzon Street Station is actually what Philip Hardwick, the architect, described as the principal building. It was meant to be the boardroom and general offices of the London and Birmingham Railway, rather than actually, um, you know, a terminus building in the true sense. The ticket office and, and such like was actually a separate building, which sadly no longer survives. The interesting thing is the board never actually met in the building because they liked the wine list at a, a hotel nearby. So they converted it to refreshment rooms within six months of it opening. So it opened 1838, refreshment room sort of tail end of 1838, beginning of 1839. And by the tail end of 1839, they were already discussing converting it into a proper hotel. Right. And it was massively extended in 1841 with hotel rooms and formal dining room and everything like that. So it then stayed in that sort of use until New Street opened uh, in 1854, at which point it was converted to offices um, and increasingly fell into use as a goods office. And it, it continued in use like that from about 1860, I guess, through to the closure of the goods station at Curzon Street in 1966. Personally, I'm not familiar with Curzon Street station. Um, was there still rail traffic running after its closure or uh, or was it? Uh, literally left and forgotten <laughs> uh well basically it it was converted from uh, a rail goods station in 1966 when most of the original sheds and such like were actually leveled and they built a parcel concentration depot on the site with royal mail running the show it carried on with trains coming in until sort of the early to mid 70s and then they cut the spur line off the rbs main line and converted everything to lorries which is a bit of a shame and then we were, we were lucky, I guess, in a way, to uh, find some bits of um, bay platforms with, with tracks still in situ when we were actually doing some of the uh, early breaking out of the concrete slab. So, you know, we did, we did see signs of its use after 1966, but it was very much more limited. As a result of HS2, Curzon Street Station lies on your path. What happens to it now? Is it being catalogued before you, you kind of pile through? Or, or is there something more extravagant than that being planned? <laughs> Well, it, it depends where you are on the site to a certain extent. Underneath our viaduct, for various engineering reasons, it hasn't been possible to preserve everything that was there previously, but that had already been demolished. And luckily, the historic records are really good. So when we excavated, what we found in the ground matched what we'd got on the map. So that it, was, it was a relief in many ways that where we weren't able to preserve things, we, we at least understood it well. There's been a very detailed 18-month programme of archaeological excavations around the building that's still standing, we're currently in the process of finally getting the refurbishment kicked off in the grade one listed principal building. Um, we've got about a year's worth of work to go and it, we've been planning this for about three years now. So it's really good news that we're finally able to get this building off the heritage at risk register because it's been empty and dilapidated for over 10 years and uh, safeguard its future. So you mentioned that it's a grade one listed building and obviously we have an international audience. What does that mean? We talk about listed buildings in the UK quite a bit, but for those who've not come across the term before, what does that actually mean? Okay, what it means in this case is grade one listing is reserved for the top 2% of buildings for their architectural or historical significance. And it means that we've got very onerous restrictions on what we can and can't do and how we can do any works to it. So we've been liaising with not just the City Council in Birmingham, who have their specialist officers, but also Historic England, our national sort of statutory body, to make sure that what we're proposing is not detrimental to the building and does safeguard its future. So 
we acknowledge that the building's at risk and everyone says we need to do the works, but we need to make sure that we do them sensitively and in the right way. And basically listing is a way of making sure that that happens. So once you've completed the, uh, the, I guess, restoration and, uh, and and securing work that you're doing on the station, is it then going to be open to the public to come and see, or is it is that going to be a practical function that it forms? Um, a little bit of both. Um, the ground floor, we're hoping to have exhibition space and an HS2 uh, visitor centre, basically. So you can come and talk to someone if you've got any concerns or you want to know what we're up to. Uh, you know, we're, we're hoping to have it manned and, and welcome the public in. There'll also be a coffee shop because, you know, it's always useful to have some refreshments while you're having a chat. Always have a coffee shop. And then the first and second floors um, are going to be flexible um, office space. So, you know, what what we're going to have up there, who knows yet, but it, it should be exciting. And it's going to be great to see the building full and, and you know, gainfully occupied for the first time in so long. So presumably, had HS2 as a project not existed, then this refurbishment work wouldn't have happened and the station would have continued to be neglected. Yes, in a nutshell. Um, several other... Um, interested parties previously have looked at the building, begun development plans, and then sadly, because of the complications, just not been able to do it. It's a very complicated building, and 1980s renovations were perhaps less sympathetic than one might have hoped, especially when you consider it was blitzed in 1941 by the Luftwaffe. So the fire damage from that was quite hastily repaired, and then 1980s rather less sympathetic repairs are on top of that. So we're having to try and carefully unpick the two previous phases of repair to, to, you know, make sure the building's actually in a suitable condition going forwards. I mean, presumably you've, you've spent a lot, a lot of time in your career looking at historic buildings and, uh, and items of the past that have been dug up. Do we do enough, uh, generally speaking, to try and preserve these things? I can confidently say that Britain is at the forefront of preserving these things. Whether we do enough, I mean, I think everyone could say we could always do more, but... I would say that we make far more effort to study the past than, than many other countries. Um, you know, I think we've got a, a reasonably proud track record of doing what we can. And how do you go about, I mean, if we're looking at infrastructure that exists today, for example, how would we know what is of historical significance for future generations? Well, that's, that's a very difficult question. Some people in the 1970s decided, for example, that Georgian architecture was horrible and large swathes of such material was demolished, uh, which... To the modern eye, seems like cultural vandalism. Likewise, with modern infrastructure and uh, the remains thereof, I'd like to think that in future years, HS2 stations will be sufficiently meritorious to have preservation and listings, but uh, time will tell, I guess. It depends on the tastes and the decisions made going forwards. So comparing how Britain does things in terms of preservation, do, uh, do other countries have... Uh, an appreciation for the importance of railway architecture in the same way that we do. How do different countries differ in their their approaches to these things? I don't know if this if you this is something you know or not. <laughs> well, it, it's very interesting because a lot of countries don't worry about anything that they see as modern, um, and their definition of modern can be surprisingly old. It can certainly be a couple of hundred years before anyone starts to think about whether something needs to be considered as old, and that leads to some rather difficult decisions from our perspective. That perhaps they don't they don't see as difficult at all. Likewise, infrastructure is a very strange beast in many ways. If it's still operational, then we need obviously to be cognizant of whilst we love its cultural value, it also needs to actually serve its function. So, for example, I used to work for English Heritage, and in their designations department, bridges, even though they can be scheduled and listed to be protected as monuments, 
if it becomes structurally unsound, the highways agency still has a right to do the maintenance that's required, regardless of the damage it does to the fabric of the old building. Because you can't have a car or a train or whatever fall into a river or or a valley or whatnot, you know. So yeah. it, it's a challenge at times. Um, likewise, finding sympathetic uses for things like redundant stations or bus depots can be extremely difficult because they're quite specialist spaces. Earlier on, you, you mentioned that you discovered a roundhouse. Uh, whereabouts was this and, and what sort of condition was it in when you found it? Well, we kind of realised fairly early on in the project, perhaps even as early as 2012, that there was a chance of an early roundhouse at the Curzon Street site. We found some references to it in some historic documents. But we'd also seen references that it had been demolished in 1860 to make way for um, 14 inlines to allow for the development of the site as a goods depot. Now, we therefore assumed that there'd be very little left. So we tentatively put a trial trench in the area a couple of years ago to see if there was anything left. And I'm delighted to say that we'd actually got the entire ground plan about a foot below rail level um, that matched to within about four inches in real terms with Robert Stevenson's original design from 1837. Once we started doing a little bit more research, we realised actually we hadn't got an early roundhouse. We'd got the earliest roundhouse in the world. Wow. So that was an astonishing thing. So we've got, you know, kind of rail buzzword bingo. You know, we've got a Stevenson, so that's a big tick. And then you've got earliest in the world. And it's just astonishing. And then we realised that actually we needed to really understand the structure a bit more because there were some elements that we just didn't quite understand. So we, we potted about and we did various phases of work. And we found out that actually we've got about 12 to 15 feet of masonry from the top of the items that we found to the actual floor of the cellar. We've even got a well that goes deeper still actually in the cellar because they had high pressure mains water to spray out the boilers at the end of shifts. And um, we found evidence of all the drainage system to go with that, including bits of ash and clinker from the boilers still in situ, which was slightly astonishing. But we'd heard that they'd put in a pumping engine in the cellar as a backup. So we got the well for it. Sadly, none of the actual engine had survived. Not really surprising, I guess, because clearly you'd want to repurpose that. But that was great. And then some weather did us a huge favour and actually opened up a little bit of one of the tunnels that we knew we were looking for that linked the coke vault, where all of the fuel for these early locomotives was stored below ground, to the actual roundhouse. So we managed to get that laser scanned because it wasn't safe for anyone to get into but it means we've actually managed to unpiece exactly how how the structure evolved over a, about a 20-year period with various phases of addition and alteration, as well as really kind of unpicking the site from a purely engineering point of view so that we know where we can work with heavy machinery and where we can't. Because basically, we've developed a strategy to preserve this all in situ and then reference it in our end design uh, which our contractors are working on at the moment. So how's how's that going to manifest then? I mean, are you going to presumably leave the original structure intact in a in a kind of preserved fashion, or or is there something something more to it? Well, we've we've at the moment we've buried it so that our construction phase can go on without causing any mischief to any of the remains, and we're confident, and the engineers are very confident that what we've got in place will will do that. Um, the actual end design is to be announced at the moment. We. We're liaising with Historic England and, and other key stakeholders to make sure that what we get is suitable for our our scheme, but also um, for the general public. And you know, we want bang for our buck, so we we want to make sure that what we've got really celebrates this fantastic piece of heritage. 
Now, as a, uh, an Industrial Revolution fan, this must have been quite something for you to be part of. Yes, absolutely. It was, it was quite an astonishing find, I'll be honest. You know, I think we'd, we'd all expected a little bit, but finding relatively early experiments in concrete, for example, the turntable pit is concrete rather than brick. You know, it's quite, it's quite a leap in terms of innovations in the sort of mid-1830s to be trying that sort of new technology. And that's caused us a few headaches because it's rather cr- more crumbly than the brickwork at this stage. But, you know, it, it, it was astonishing. You know, you, you can really see that genesis. Um, likewise, the additions really show the pace of change with rail technology at this period because it was designed to hold 16 locomotives and tenders or 32 locomotives, but it's only 124 foot in diameter. So right. within one or two generations of locomotive, you're not looking at something that's a functional and useful structure. You're looking at it as an obstruction to progress. Um, so they had to build a load of through sheds to, to allow the new locomotives. Even something the size of a bloomer was rather too large for the turntable. For those listening, if they want to, to I don't know, see pictures of what you discovered or maybe some, some illustrations of what it looked like originally, is there somewhere they can go to find this? Uh, yes, I'm delighted to say we've, we've been celebrating this quite widely and HS2's YouTube channel has got some very useful webinars produced by some of our friends at Bradford University and the National Railway Museum. So if you search HS2 Heritage on YouTube, you should be able to pick up those and they've got all sorts of fly-throughs and uh, 3D visualisations and things that you can enjoy. Right. Now, you're not a traditional rail fan, John, so so I don't know how well this is going to work, but we're going to give it a try anyway. Uh, <laughs> we always close out the podcast with a, with a series of quick-fire questions. All right. You ready? Yep. Let's go for it. Okay. So, do you have a favourite train? And if you don't, then instead, do you have a favourite piece of railway infrastructure? <laughs> now, I do actually have a favourite train, and that's Mallard, uh, mainly because I'm a sucker for streamliners. And it's kind of a double win because it's both fast and elegant. Okay, good. Uh, now, are you a fan more of steam, diesel, or modern trains? Uh, steam, full stop. <laughs> Do you have a preferred era of steam? Are you uh, are you back in the the glory days where it first began, or do you like the 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 heavy hitters at the end of the era in the the nineteen fifties? Well, it's the sort of thirties through fifties, you know, when they really started giving it some. Okay. Is there one piece of uh, of railway history you wish you'd seen live? Yeah, I'd quite like to have seen Stevenson's locomotion, I'll be honest. Because, you know, without that, we wouldn't really have got Rocket. Is there a favourite place to travel uh, by rail in? Uh, yes, I really enjoyed uh, a trip I took a few years ago uh, to Rome, set out from Florence, uh, Santa Maria Novella, which is a fantastic, albeit rather fascist, railway station. And then blasted through Tuscany on the express into Rome. It was an amazing trip. Beautiful. Can recommend it. You're an expert in the past, but gazing forwards, what does the future of train travel hold? Well, HS2, obviously. We're, we're currently looking at what the future of British Rail, at least, looks like. And, and we're, we're confident that our new fleet of train sets will be amongst the fastest in the world. Um, and we're aiming for them to be faster than the bullet trains. So I think that's a pretty good start. Thanks very much for coming on the show, John. It's been really nice to have you on board. Where can we find out a little bit more about the work going on with HS2? HS2's website. We like to reach out and talk to people. Anyone who's listening to this, please feel free to ask more questions. They will get through to me and, you know, happy to have that conversation. Smashing. And is there somewhere dedicated within that site about the finds that you're uncovering along the way? 
Uh, there is on on the HS2 sort of outward facing website. There's there's a regularly updated section on on the heritage and our recent discoveries. John, thanks very much for coming on to the podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear about what you've discovered as part of your role. It's been a pleasure, Sam. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying this series, please let us know via wearerailfans.com or use the We Are Railfans Facebook page. Just like Ben from Grimsby, who told us, love the podcast. Ben, you've got great taste. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode as soon as the signal changes. This has been a Listen production. Thanks for travelling with us today, and if you wouldn't mind, please ensure you have all your belongings with you before you leave the show. And we'll catch you next time.